From VT Digger, this is The Deeper Dig. One thing that has guided my reporting or informed my reporting is a sense that as a state or maybe even as a country, we're, we're okay with some level of um, problems within our prisons. There's, there's a, a belief that things are going to be messed up there, that you're not going to be receiving adequate care. And so it has felt like in order for something to be a story, someone has to die. I'm Sam Gale Rosen. On today's episode, a discussion about the Vermont Department of Corrections. It's not unusual for Vermont's Corrections Department to be at the center of debate. The department manages six prisons across Vermont with more than 1,000 incarcerated people in the system. The department is perpetually facing challenges which only increase during the pressures of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are perennial discussions over the ethics of sending people to out-of-state prisons, over the conditions that incarcerated people face, and over what working conditions are like for the department's employees. In the past year and a half, a large number of incarcerated people have died, many of whom died at one prison, the Southern State Correctional Facility in Springfield. That has focused even more attention on the Department of Corrections as well as the health care and conditions in Vermont's prisons. I spoke about some of these issues with reporter Ethan Weinstein. He covers southeastern Vermont for VT Digger, and much of his recent journalism has focused on the Department of Corrections. I started by asking him about that recent spate of deaths, 16 altogether and 12 at the Southern State Correctional Facility since January 2022, and how unusual that is. Yeah, so in the years previous to 2022, um, there was something like an average of three deaths per year, and that was looking at um, the five years prior to 2022. And so to have uh, 16 deaths in the last year and a half is certainly not par for the course. And what do we know about this? Can you talk a little bit about some of these deaths in particular and what we do and don't know about how they happened? So we do know that the vast majority of these deaths are, the death certificates are listed as natural causes. That that doesn't tell us a lot, but it does mean that, um, you know, these are not uh, homicides for the most part. Um, but natural causes doesn't just mean that someone died of old age. It could be that they had a chronic health condition that, uh, led to their death or even a more acute, uh, health situation can still get listed as natural causes. We do know that so far this year, there's been one suicide and in 2022, uh, there were at least two suicides. And so, uh, those are playing a factor. There's also been, um, at least one overdose death, um, so that is uh, another cause of death, but um, it's hard to it's hard for us to know a lot about what's been going on. We hear um, from the Department of Corrections generally a couple paragraphs, or maybe from state police, but without really pressing to learn more, there's oftentimes very little information immediately available. And you've been pressing to learn more. Um, I have been, um, particularly uh, earlier this year with the death of a man named David Mitchell, who died um, back in April at Southern State in Springfield. Um, that was an instance where our reporting has indicated that, you know, the initial bits of information released by the state did not reflect um, what we believe to have gone on. Can you tell me a little bit about that case in particular? 
Yeah, so we we come to learn that David Mitchell was uh, chronically ill. He had COPD and uh, struggled with breathing. Um, he had an oxygen tank. He had spent time in the hospital, in the prison infirmary. Um, and on the day of his death, through a number of interviews with eyewitnesses, particularly um, people who were incarcerated near to David Mitchell, we came to learn that um, allegedly uh, Mitchell was complaining about his struggles breathing in the day uh, in the morning of his death that he had requested medical attention repeatedly um we believe that he was seen in a sort of cursory fashion by a nurse uh who dismissed uh his complaints that he couldn't breathe and as he continued to 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 struggle to beg uh to even cry some folks have said um a correctional officer threatened to send mitchell to solitary confinement because he was sick of listening to him um, complain about his health problems. After our discussion, Ethan sent me some audio of a conversation he had with Preston Lawson, who lived next to David Mitchell at Southern State Correctional Facility for about a month. Here's Lawson describing an interaction he said he heard between Mitchell and a correctional officer before Mitchell's death. He said, if you don't stop being dramatic and causing a scene, he said, you're not going to, he said, you're not going to the infirmary and you're not going to the ICU at the hospital. He said the only thing that's going to be different is you're going to end up in an, uh, in an observation cell in segregation. He said, you're just going to go right over there to segregation. That's where I got a spot for you if you don't stop. Uh, we were joking again. We we're like, he's going to end up dying. And uh, soon thereafter, Mitchell was found unconscious. Um, we believe, uh, you know, uh, life-saving measures, CPR, that kind of thing took place for um you know, the immediate, immediate time after he was found, and uh, he was pronounced dead uh, soon, soon thereafter. And you said that didn't, that story doesn't match up with what you heard from the DOC, at least at the beginning. Is that right? Well, you know, uh, we, we, we learned of the situation in minimal detail originally. And so um, it was, I believe it was state police who, uh, when there is a death in Vermont's prisons, uh, typically state police are the first to release any information about it. They put out a, you know, uh, a typical press release uh, with pretty minimal information, and they did indicate that this man, uh, Mr. Mitchell, had uh, had complained that he was struggling to breathe uh, the morning of his death, um, and so we did know that fact, but we didn't know the extent of. His complaints, nor did we know um, the extent of his health history and health issues. Has the DOC or the state police sort of come out with more information about this now after you found it out from other sources or in the course of an investigation? Really, there has still been um, pretty minimal uh, information released. After we spoke to the first eyewitness, um, we were able to talk to Nick Demmel, the, the, the commissioner of the Department of Corrections. He indicated that um, their investigation suggested uh, David Mitchell had met with uh, health staff that morning. And um, I believe the phrase Demmel used was that Mitchell had a robust health history. Um, so that that's far from indicating, you know, the specifics of his health issues, but it is um, perhaps surprisingly to most people that that's more than we typically get. So yeah. that was a little bit more information that was shared. 
And when you look at this and you look at other deaths that have occurred, are you seeing common threads? Are you seeing sort of similar stories with other people to this? We're not we're not necessarily seeing this with deaths. Um, but what we what we do know is that um, Springfield is home to uh, the prison infirmary in Vermont. And so uh, there are more medical resources at the facilities uh, at, at that specific facility than there are elsewhere. Um, the Department of Corrections has used that as an explanation for why such a majority of the deaths are occurring in Springfield. Um, but when we look at the people who have died, um, they don't tend to be older folks necessarily. You know, there are some that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, yes, there there have been um, older folks who have died, but uh, they don't make up the majority. And so it's hard to say that um, it, it, it's hard from the outside with, with the information that we have. It's hard to say that um, the reason Springfield is seeing so many deaths is necessarily because they have sicker individuals. And, and just to clarify, does that mean if you're at some other facility and you're particularly ill, you might be sent there because there is an infirmary there? Yes. Or um, perhaps when you enter the prison system, um, you might begin your stay in Springfield because you need immediate medical attention. And so obviously a lot of what we've talked about so far has centered around healthcare and the healthcare being being offered and whether it's being offered and how it's being offered. And I know there's there have been sort of complaints both around this case and also more broadly in the system. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So in in sort of the, the days and weeks and at this point months since um, I first reported on David Mitchell's death, we've had a number of folks reach out to us with complaints about healthcare specifically in Springfield. And so I've talked to a number of incarcerated individuals who've experienced, you know, uh, the, the, a, a full range of healthcare issues. Um, in, in one instance, I've talked to the loved one of a person incarcerated in Springfield, um, and this man has diabetes. He struggled to, although he came into the prison system with a continuous glucose monitor that was taken away for him, from him, he hasn't been able to regulate his blood sugar. And as a result, he's, um, this loved one says he's, he's had a seizure. He's had blackouts. Um, his blood sugar is spiking to levels that it hadn't when he was, you know, before he was incarcerated and he, he had, you know, strategies to, to, to handle his diabetes. This wasn't by any means a, a debilitating illness for him. It was something that he had, you know, uh, I believe that he had type one diabetes. So he'd lived with this for a long time and, and he, could manage his own care for the most part before he entered the facility. And one thing that um, the conversations I had uh, with this person have really indicated, um, you know, I've been able to see the communications between family members and Vermont's health service uh, prison provider, which is Vital Corps. The um, they provide healthcare in Vermont's prisons, and to see the way that you know the buck is continuously passed, you might reach out to a DOC official who directs you to a vital core official who directs you to their supervisor who's, you know, based out of state. You schedule a meeting, the meeting gets rescheduled. By the time you talk to someone, it's not a person that has any real intimate knowledge of your loved one's health condition because you're talking to 
a middle manager or maybe even if you're lucky an executive who who isn't based in Vermont doesn't doesn't really know what's going on in Vermont's prisons. I've talked to um, many folks incarcerated in Springfield and I haven't necessarily had the time to uh, check with DOC about their responses to uh, allegations and so these are the stories of of a number of um, inmates but it's you know their version of events could be skewed Um, but for example you know I've I've spoke to um, a man named Eric Sardo who is incarcerated at Southern State Um, and one thing that he has been personally very frustrated about is that um, he he's 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 prescribed suboxone um, for his um, opioid use disorder Um, he feels like that that works for him. It it helps uh, his mood. It it gives him energy. Ethan refers a few times in the interview to Eric Sardo taking Suboxone. He told me after that the medication Sardo was taking was actually Subutex, which is a slightly different medication that also has buprenorphine as an active ingredient. And uh, in in two instances that he described to me, um, he had that medication either. Um, uh, decreased or taken away. Um, so, to back up for a second, um, the way that uh, the way that reprimands work in Vermont's prisons are, you get something often referred to as a ticket, where basically a corrections officer might see you do something that they believe is against the rules. They write you up, and you have a hearing at a later date within the prison to uh, hash that out. You could you could plead and and get a lesser punishment. You could be found not guilty, but it's basically a judicial process within the prison. And so what um, Eric Sardo has described to me is that in, in, in one or perhaps both of these instances, he was accused by a correctional officer of diverting his medication. Basically, you have to take your, your Suboxone immediately when it's given to you. You can't carry it with you for the rest of the day because there's a concern you might try to sell it or try to abuse it in some fashion. And so he was accused of uh, diverting his Suboxone and was immediately either, at first his medication was halved, the dose was cut in half, or um, in the second instance, he was taken off the medication completely. And so, um, first of all, he says that, you know, he sh- that shouldn't occur until um, he's had his judicial hearing and, and been found guilty or not guilty on the accusations. But um, what he says is that in both both instances, he was found not guilty and he still hasn't been able to get back on his medication because that judicial system within the prison isn't necessarily connected to the health contractor who's in charge of administering the medication. And there's really this disconnect between DOC staff and healthcare staff that's prevented him from getting this medication that he says makes him just a, a more functional uh, human being, and and for the, at least with the people you're talking to, are, do they think that do they sort of have a theory of the case as to why the, the in their view the medical care is so bad? Do they think it's just sort of neglect, or are are there concerns about uh, medical care being used as punishment or retribution? I think it's hard to say. Um, when when you are one person who's been incarcerated your story is really personal and i think a lot of times it does feel like retaliation when something like this 
occurs. Um, and a lot of times folks have told me that, um, you know, grieving their issues, complaining about their, the, the healthcare situation can make it even harder to receive the care that they need. And so they, they interpret that as retaliation. Um, what we do know more generally is that Vital Corps um, signed their contract with the Department of Corrections uh, in the very early days of the COVID pandemic. And so there's been some suggestion from Department of Corrections officials that when they created that contract with Vital Corps, it really didn't factor in some of the expenses uh, that medical, that healthcare providers have had to uh, deal with uh, in the wake of COVID, whether that's, you know, PPE or testing or just the additional infrastructure that comes with dealing with a pandemic those costs weren't factored into the contract. And so the implication there is that in order to uh, you know, cut their losses and deal with a healthcare environment that's more expensive than they anticipated, perhaps that could be one of the reasons why service has been so abysmal in the description of, of these people. And and does has the DOC or this company in any way um, acknowledged? Do they admit that the healthcare is substandard or even abysmal, or are they, or is the, or is that something they just aren't saying or addressing right now? Well, we have not heard um, much from Vital Core, but from the Department of Corrections, we do hear that they're constantly striving for better service. Um, they would never use those words uh, like abysmal, or they, I think that they. Um, would hesitate to even critique the care that uh, is is being delivered in their facilities, but they're willing to say that they want to do better, um, and and that's about as much as we're able to get at this point. Have they said anything about how they would try to do better or how they might address some of these issues? I think that they're pretty vague on the specifics. Um, what we do know is that in the latest healthcare contract that DOC has signed, which is set to take effect in July, um, it's it's an almost 50% increase in cost over, uh, or it's more than a 50% increase, I believe, in cost than the previous Vital Core contract. So, I mean, what that shows to me is that they're willing to invest a lot more money um, into health services in their prisons. Does that mean that the care is necessarily going to be better? I I don't think we can be sure, but uh, it will at least be better funded. Uh, and I know that Commissioner Demel has said, he's quoted some statistics and said that, in fact, the that people in the correction system are sicker than they've been before, in addition. And do you, is that a part of this issue? Is that a deflection or is, is it more complicated than that? Well, so just to hash out a little bit about what the commissioner has said. Um, he's, he's said previously that uh, about a thousand of the 1300 people that are incarcerated in Vermont suffer from a chronic illness. Um, and that's a 47% increase since 2015, he said. And so when we're, when we're talking about um, chronic illness, you know, that could be um, a form of addiction. It could be a, uh, I mean, I think it includes things like asthma and diabetes and, and more typical chronic illnesses. But we do know that um, folks are coming into Vermont's prisons uh, more addicted to opioids than they have in the past. Um, the commissioner has said that the average person in custody is prescribed five and a half medications, um, 
A lot of those are uh, medically assisted treatment medications. Um, a lot of inmates are prescribed Wellbutrin for mental uh, mental illness, whether that's anxiety or depression. Um, Seventy percent of people, the commissioner says, are prescribed a psychotropic medication. So that's uh, something that might affect mood or behavior. It's hard, you know, uh, advocates and um, family members of people incarcerated in Vermont, in in my experience, really resent uh, the commissioner for saying this. They feel like. This is his way of of passing the buck. It's it's the department's responsibility to take care of the people that are uh, in its custody, and so to to suggest that um, it, it, they can't do so because of the physical well the physical state of uh, incarcerated people that's that's angered a lot of people that I've talked to. And have any of the people you've talked to from incarcerated people to their loved ones or advocates, do they have, do they have specific asks from that for things that they want to see change? I mean, I'm sure they have many, but are are there some common threads there? I think that folks would like to see more transparency. Um, They would like to see more admission of, of wrongdoing and, and rather than, you know, an abdication of responsibility. So specifically with the case of, of David Mitchell, you know, uh, that's really been a a rallying moment for uh, families of incarcerated people because they feel like, you know, this, this could happen to their loved one and they want to see the people at the center of that incident, held responsible for whatever it is that occurred. Um, but I think that overall people would just like to see speedier medical care. It can take months to, um, receive care once you've requested it. And oftentimes, uh, you know, that initial instance of receiving some sort of medical care is really minute. You might only see a nurse for a couple minutes. Um, and it can be especially difficult to see specialists or, uh, to leave a facility to go to a hospital to see, you know, an expert. Um, and so I think that folks would really just like to see the processes speed up um, and, and you know, feel like um, health services are a service that's available and, and not some sort of privilege that's out of, out of their reach. And something we've been hearing about uh, in connection with the Department of Corrections and how things are going in general as well is that is is staffing concerns and pressures that the staff uh, at the department are under. And Commissioner Demel testified in front of a Vermont House committee back in February about some of this. There were moments when he was visibly emotional. These are unique jobs. Uh, and this is acutely painful for many of the folks that are working in the Department of Corrections because they're doing that same thing in a different environment. They're there every night. It's scary. It can be dark. It's awfully loud. Uh, But you don't know what that next moment is. And we need to be there for them. And we're not doing a good enough job. Can you talk about what he, some of the things that he said he was concerned about? Yeah. So pretty much as long as I've been a reporter here about the last two years, there's been a lot of talk about staffing problems in Vermont's prisons. Um, a, a lack of staff has caused, um, it, it's been a, a statewide issue in Vermont's prisons. It's been worse at the Springfield prison. Um, 
it, it's caused uh, correctional officers to work 16 hour shifts regularly. Um, there's been mandatory overtime. Um, a lot of times they're working these 16 hour shifts back to back. Um, and so, I mean, we've heard whether it's from the commission, the commissioner, or um, oftentimes we hear from Steve Howard, the head of uh, the Vermont State's Employees Association, the the union for state employees. We hear from him about you know folks falling asleep on their way home, or folks uh, their family lives being torn apart because when they're not working, all they really have the energy to do is is sleep, and so they can't go to their kids' sports games. They can't maintain their relationships with loved ones and um, it's clearly taking a toll on the rank and file staff inside Vermont's prisons. And do we know what's causing that? Is it just, uh, are, are there particular issues? Like, does this have to do with COVID? Does this have to do with, uh, I don't know, pay and benefits? Like, do, are, what, what's, what's being discussed in connection with, with these staffing issues? I think those are all factors. You know, we saw the way the pandemic um, created staffing challenges in pretty much every single field as folks moved to different careers or they left the workforce, they found better hours and better pay elsewhere. Um, These are not high paying positions. Um, There have been efforts to increase signing bonuses um, and and make uh, a, being a correctional officer a, a more desirable career. Um, I think one of the issues is uh, the possibility of of career advancement. Um, you can be a CO, you can be a CO two, which is the next level. But but folks want to find ways to rise uh, within the department and uh, take on more supervisory or managerial positions. And and so that's also been a focus of the department is expanding those opportunities for people that might enter the prison workforce at the lowest level. Does it seem like, you know, staff and unions and management are sort of on the same page in identifying these problems and looking for solutions for them? Or are they also at odds like have there been accusations of mismanagement basically certainly the union and uh department leaders are and have been at odds um i think there's a a desire to reconcile those differences but you know steve howard in particular who leads the union um he never shies away from a fight but this is a fight that he's been fighting for some time um you know, he, he said as much in the past that uh, he, he feels like the commissioner, perhaps well-intentioned, but it feels like lip service at this point um, as far as m- making strides to take care of rank and file DOC employees. And so, uh, I mean, I would say that that fight has gotten ugly in the past. Um, Correction staff are some of the most vocal within the union. We've we've heard that from folks in other parts of state government, and oftentimes it seems as though uh, the battle that Steve Howard wants to fight is is the corrections battle. And so this has been on the forefront of of the union's mind, and and they haven't minced words with Commissioner Demel. And and what do they want to see management do differently? I think they would want significant raises um i believe it was 
Nebraska, where uh, there was a, a huge increase in uh, salaries for corrections employees, and they saw recruitment, you know, go off the rails. Um, and so that's an instance that people point to to say, look, money really can solve this problem. But more than that, I think it's finding a more sustainable work-life balance. Um, there has been some effort, um, and I'm not sure the status of it currently, but to move to a shift schedule that saw people work longer hours and fewer days. Um, basically, you know, people could work four days in a row and then get a chunk of three or four days off. And, and that had been proposed by corrections officials as a possible solution to the challenges uh, the rank and file are facing. But until there are enough correctional officers, it's really hard to implement that system in a way that works for the people in it. Incarcerated people really feel the effects of the staffing shortages in Vermont's prisons. Um, and in instances that, you know, in conversations I've had, they, they even really appear empathetic to the problems facing correctional officers. In, in Springfield in particular, I've heard that a lack of officers has led to decreased rec time. Um, you know, uh, in the past, um, I've heard uh, people could go outside, you know, maybe three times a day for an hour each time, and that's been cut back oftentimes to only an hour a day. Or in in the most extreme instance that I've heard about, and and this was a number of months ago, and it sounds like the staffing situation has gotten better since then, but there was so little staff that folks actually weren't allowed out of their cells except for very, uh, you know, very few instances. And they were essentially on lockdown for almost two days. Um, and so when I when I talk to uh, incarcerated people about this, I mean, they're they're certainly not they're angry with the department, but they're not they're not angry with the officers. They recognize the way that um, working 16 hour shifts, especially against uh, the will of these correctional officers, it's necessarily going to make them have a shorter temper. It's going to make them more, you know, your um, your defense mechanisms are more easily triggered when you're exhausted. And so they might be quicker to reprimand uh, an incarcerated person. They might be quicker to start a fight or just you'll necessarily be less helpful if, if you haven't been sleeping. Um, and that's something that seemingly the people I've talked to have really empathized with because you know, they're all, they, uh, despite the relationship that can at times be antagonistic, um, when everyone gets along, everyone has a better time. That's something I hear again and again. One thing that has guided my reporting or informed my reporting is a sense that it's, it, as a as a state or maybe even as a country we're we're okay with some level of um problems within our prisons there's there's a a belief that things are going to be messed up there that you're not going to be receiving adequate care and so it has felt like in order for something to be a story it it needs to someone has to die you know it's it's not enough to hear that um a person has a concussion and they can't see a doctor or a person has been prescribed a medication their whole life and has been refused it um, once they've been incarcerated. Um, it just seems as though our tolerance for 
issues within our prisons is so high that um, it can be hard to get people to care about those. And does it seem to you like that's true, uh, both of the general public and of people in power who might have the the ability to change some of these conditions? I think that it's true for both. You know, I think we, we build prisons um, so that people can't escape. And uh, unfortunately, I think we also build them so that information can't escape. Um, I mean, you look at the communication resources available to incarcerated people in Vermont. They need to have phone numbers approved in order to contact people. If they want to send a direct message, uh, it costs them 25 cents. Uh, They might need someone on the outside to add them. They can't just necessarily reach out to random people. If they want to communicate via video chat with someone, it's going to cost them 50 cents. And so the barriers and the... Uh, the incentives uh, involved in in keeping information about what goes on in our prisons away from public view, um, I think it makes it really hard uh, to know what's going on and and just how bad it might be. Does does that make does that siloing of information make it a particularly difficult thing to cover as a journalist? It does make it difficult, but I think that um, it also makes it exciting. And, um, you know, when I've talked to incarcerated people, in some instances, they've reached out to journalists before, and and they've never had luck talking to someone. And, and for them to talk to someone who's not their lawyer, not a DOC staff member, not a family member, it's, um, it's an experience that many of them haven't had for a long time. And so just to, I think, have someone listen to the problems they're having, um, you know, oftentimes they can't get the ear of uh, the prisoner's rights office. Um, and so it's a it's a really unique experience to be able to talk to people about their daily lives and and, you know, some of the, the issues they're having. Well, thanks again, Ethan, uh, for the work you do and also for being willing to talk to me about this. Of course. Thanks, Sam. It's been great. Ethan Weinstein covers southeastern Vermont for VT Digger. You can find other Deeper Dig episodes on vtdigger.org, Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sam Gilrosen. Thanks for listening. This is The Deeper Dig. Deeper Dig.